Good morning, Manuel. I'm excited to continue our series in First Peter with you. Last Sunday, we explored the reality of, a sec- of the secure inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. This is what the author Peter described as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. That is secure. This morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like to get our hands on our spiritual inheritance. The scriptures teach that every Christian has been given full access to all the spiritual riches of heaven through Jesus. That's a concept that has always intrigued me. This idea that there is good stuff, spiritual treasure in heaven right now that actually belongs to me. But for the longest time, I had trouble knowing what, practically speaking, this might mean. Like, how do I get access to my inheritance in Jesus? I don't usually feel very connected to that reality. Here's what it feels like. Let's say I'm working a minimum wage job that is exhausting and it's not great for my health, but I don't have the time or energy to look for something else. And let's say my employer schedules me for so many hours that I can't fit in a second job, but not quite enough hours to qualify me for full-time benefits. So I spend a lot of time working and a lot of time worrying about finances and a lot of time figuring out how to save money. But then I learned that an ancient rich relative of mine, who I didn't know, died and left me their entire estate. The lawyers give me a debit card to a big old Chase bank account with literally millions of dollars in it. So I'm delighted to realize that when I eventually retire, somewhere down the line, I'll be well taken care of. What a relief. But somehow I never get around to actually spending any of the money. I just keep on scrimping and worrying and living hand to mouth, just like I've always done. And since that's the case, sometimes I have a hard time believing I really am a millionaire. Objectively speaking, it's the truth. My status as a multimillionaire is secure, but it just doesn't make much practical difference for me. I think this is the way it is for a lot of us believers. We are beloved heirs of the Father who through the beautiful work of Jesus Christ on the cross has given us spiritual access to all the riches of heaven, but not a lot necessarily changes in our day-to-day lives. We occasionally think about the future And it's nice to think that in heaven, we won't have to deal with sad and painful stuff that we deal with now. But that feels like that might be the extent of it. By and large, life continues for us, much like it does for everyone else. Spiritually speaking, we're billionaires. But so what? We're not really enjoying the benefits of being heirs of Christ. And what's more, no one else is benefiting from our riches either. This is a weird way to live. We have access to all the spiritual riches of heaven, 
And yet sometimes we live like spiritual paupers. We have a father in heaven who loves us more than life itself, yet we live like orphans. What does it look like to activate the inheritance that we've been given? How can we put these spiritual riches to work for us and to the benefit of those all around us? Well, in the second half of chapter one of Peter's first letter, he has some wisdom to share. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. The Greek of this first phrase is literally, gird up the loins of your mind to prepare for action. If your everyday clothes were flowing robes, as they were in the days of Jesus, and you needed to run somewhere and get stuff done, you'd scoop up the loose fabric and tuck it into your belt so you are ready to do what needs doing. Those of us who have invested our hope in God's grace need to act on that hope. Hope in Jesus is not something meant to reside in our brains or even our hearts only. Spending these spiritual riches is very practical business. In these verses, the Apostle Peter is going to show us how to activate that hope. This is the debit card that the lawyers gave us connected to that enormous heavenly bank account. And it remains tucked away in our wallets, overlooked most of the time, because it seems pretty insignificant. The key to living like a spiritual millionaire can, I believe, be summed up in one unglamorous word. Obedience. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He calls us obedient children, sometimes translated as children of obedience. Hmm. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, how did we get from learning how to live like a millionaire to talking about obedience? That seems like a pretty big leap but a pretty short amount of time. Obedience has to be one of the least exciting words in the Christian life. I don't know anyone who thrills at the chance to be told what to do by someone else. I don't like that idea myself. If I'm obligated to obey someone, I usually not only feel like I'm automatically somehow lesser than the person I'm supposed to obey, which is annoying, but it also feels kind of claustrophobic. Like, I'm just supposed to do what someone else says to do all the time. There's not going to be any room for the freedom that Jesus himself said he came to give us. There's not room for flexibility or nuance or my creativity. These are all things that I like having in my life. And that's even if I am being told to do stuff I don't mind doing. I'd hate to think what it feels to be told to do something I don't want to do at all. So if you are feeling squeamish about obedience, you're not alone. But please consider this. When it comes to obeying the Lord God, who is literally the only source of life and love in this world, obedience is indistinguishable from love. For human beings, love and obedience to God are one and the same thing. 
Now, this is maybe not in the way that you're thinking. We human beings are pretty messed up. We often assume that this means we have to earn love from God through obedience. This is probably because this is how some people we know operate, right? That's a lie. Be very clear on this. Obedience does not earn love. We receive the inheritance of love from God only by faith in who he is and what he has done through his son, Jesus. The love of God is freely given as well as lavishly given. It literally has nothing to do with our ability to obey. We are transformed from sinners into sons and daughters by the work of Jesus Christ, not by anything that we can do. We didn't earn the riches in our spiritual bank account by obedience, and we don't get access to it through obedience. We got this bank account because God put it there for us to enjoy because he loves us. And Jesus handed us the debit card because he wants us to be able to spend love and enjoy love. In fact, one of the best ways to conceptualize what those spiritual riches are is to understand them as a huge deposit of God's love for us and for others and for all the world. But if these spiritual riches comprised of the love of God are to be enjoyed and spent, we've got to get busy participating in his love. And really, the only way to participate in the precious love of God is through obedience, because obedience to God is love made manifest in our world. Obedience is deeply and integrally and intimately connected to love. Jesus was super clear on this point. He said flat out at one point, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I confess for most of my life, I've struggled not to hear these words as if Jesus was being insecure in a kind of a low-key aggressive way, like, oh, you say you love me? Well, you're going to have to prove it by doing everything I say. Eventually, it clicked for me, though. Jesus is actually simply stating cause and effect. It's very matter of fact. If you love me, of course you're going to keep my commandments. Just like if you fall in this pool of water, you will get wet. You can't go underwater without getting wet. If you go underwater, you will get wet because wetness is what happens when you come into contact with water. And it's the same way with receiving the love of God. If you love God, obedience happens because obedience to God is what love looks like for us. Obedience to God is nothing more and nothing less than the love of God made manifest through action. And this is not some mechanistic thing. Our spiritual inheritance consists of our relationship to God. There are no benefits of the Christian faith that exist apart from him and being in communion with him. The moral teachings of scripture simply describe the concrete, practical outworking of his love in our relationships. In the Latin language from which we get in our English word obey, there's a dual meaning of hearing and moving toward. We are not orphans. We are children. 
Our Father is God, and God is love. His self-giving love is the foundation of the universe and the purpose for which we've been created. And so, apart from him, we can't know love. But as we are born again into this living hope, we have both the opportunity and the capacity to grow more and more into our Father's likeness. We hear the call of fatherly love and move closer and closer toward the author and source of our being. In the Bible, identity statements about God often appear as commands for his people, which then in turn become identity statements for us. God is love. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers and sisters. That's something we learned from the first letter of John. By the same token here, in the first letter of Peter, we learned that it is because God is holy that we will become holy. For the early Christians, as soon as Peter quotes the Old Testament book of Leviticus in verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, Peter's first readers, these early Christians, would know that he is referencing God's laws and specifically even the Ten Commandments. Have you ever noticed that the Ten Commandments, with all their negatively expressed thou shalt not statements, are nonetheless summarized by Jesus in positively expressed thou shall statements? We say them every Sunday at the beginning of the service in the summary of the law. Just this morning, we heard, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The commandments and love are the same thing. You and I and every other human being on the planet were created in God's image. We were made to resemble and to represent him. And you and I and every other human being on the planet has been damaged and disfigured by sin. Because all of us are created in God's image and because all human beings have fallen subject to the reign of sin and death, all human cultures all the things we do together normally as a society have some elements that the gospel affirms. And it also has elements that the gospel calls us to separate from. When God calls us to love one another, he calls us out of the rotten old ways that we used to relate to each other. The very word holy means set apart. All the thou shalt nots of scripture both the laws in the Old Testament and what they call vice lists in the New Testament, they're like lighthouses warning us away from the jagged rocks in our culture that will shipwreck love if we don't avoid them. In verse 17, Peter elaborates on the harmful nature of our default ways of living. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways 
inherited from your forefathers by the precious blood of Christ. And bouncing back briefly to verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. These verses call attention to what we must leave behind when we activate the love of God in our lives and begin living into the secure status that we have as sons and daughters of God. We have to identify and forsake the useless, futile ways of being that are normalized by our culture. We have to actively resist the passions of ignorance that feel so natural to us. The pure love of God changes how we understand our native ways. As theologian Karen Job says, the very knowledge of Christ that brings us into relationship with God also brings us knowledge of sin and God's wrath upon it. Now, knowledge of Christ and his love often feels really good, and it is good. The accompanying knowledge of sin and God's wrath for sin, not so much. It is a very humbling and a very vulnerable thing to have our eyes opened to the ignorance and futility of ways of life that we felt once were normal and natural and good, but are actually devastating for ourselves and those we love. Then Peter names a harsh reality here. Those who, who love through obedience will live as exiles on earth. The knowledge of God's pure life-giving love will put us at odds with some of the people around us whom we love, and whose respect we desire. We may no longer enjoy the rights and privileges that we had when we were content to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. The more that the love of God marks us, the more our obedience differentiates us from those around us, the more clearly Christ can be seen, and the more positive benefits are drawn from that, and with that, often the more negative attention we will attract. Jesus promised that when we learn to live as he lived, when we identify ourselves with this most loving and perfect of human beings, we will share his fate, and that is for good and for ill in this world. Jesus said in John's gospel, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus said. And then he adds, if they keep my words, they will also keep yours. So obedience and love are both costly. Obedience and love cost Jesus his life. Obedience and love cost Peter his life also. But Peter and Jesus both persevered in obedience and love because of their great love for their father and their great love for brothers and sisters on earth. They persevered that others might hear the word of God and be saved and become spiritual millionaires themselves. 
And because we are co-heirs with Christ, we can persevere in obedience and love also. Now, you may have some doubts about your abilities along those lines. I have mine own too. I want to obey and to love with a self-giving abandonment that Jesus and Peter modeled in their martyrdom. But I don't feel super confident about my ability to follow through in all circumstances. But I do trust what the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter here. This is the same Peter, mind you, that collapsed under pressure, social pressure, on Monday, Thursday. He denied he ever knew Jesus. The same Peter reassures this, that this is where our secure status as heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ come into play. Verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Part of the futility of this world is the way we are conditioned to think that spiritual realities are less real than physical realities we interact with. But the gospel proclaims the opposite. These spiritual riches that we have in heaven are real and not imaginary. Our spiritual status as children of God is a reality, not a fiction. We have God's Holy Spirit living in us, and God's word is more real and consequential and eternal than even our fleshly bodies are. For all flesh is like the grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Not only is the living and abiding word of God more pure and holy and beautiful and loving than anything on earth, it is the only thing that will survive this world. And this word is the good news that was preached to you and that God is pleased to use your humble and imperfect actions to bring that good news to others as you love them. With the confidence that comes from our secure status as children and heirs of Christ, then we continue to express the love of God through our obedience to God. And the more thoroughly we obey, the greater our capacity for love grows. Looking now at verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. God uses our imperfect obedience to the truth to purify our souls for the purpose of loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Obedience is a precondition for the ability to love others. And that relationship between obedience and love is self-reinforcing. Because God loves us, we love him. Because we love him, we obey him. These acts of obedience are acts of love. And it is through obedience to God that we are better and better able to love one another sincerely from the heart. And notice this theme of pure love approaching closer and closer that perfect love of God. Four times in this one verse, Peter is trying to express the same idea through different words. Purified, sincere, 
earnestly pure. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Obedience then involves not only hearing and moving closer to God, but moving out of these old and impure ways of living. It's not about perfection and it's not about fussiness. It's about deeply sincere, heartfelt love flowing from the Father, not originating in ourselves, but flowing out through us to others. And so the practical work of love is this pursuit of holiness. To purify ourselves by giving up double-minded ways of living, we can stop being malicious. We stop lying to ourselves, stop lying to other people, get rid of hypocrisy, get rid of negativity toward your neighbor, confess, repent of envy and slander, live like a child of God, living in obedience to God so that we may, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And we don't purify ourselves by our obedience. The Lord purifies us. We can't handle that on our own. Um, this practice of living in a new way of confession and repentance means that there's never a moment that we have to be outside the grace and the forgiveness of God or be unclothed by the holiness of Jesus. So if you have tasted the riches of God's love, we cultivate that craving and longing for even purer love of God We can become like newborn infants in the intensity of longing for this holiness of God. Newborn infants are not sophisticated, but they do know what's essential. They all know almost nothing, but the things they do know, they know in every cell of their tiny bodies. They know that they need milk to live. They crave that nourishment. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live apart from this holy love of God. We were created to live in communion with him. If our faith and hope are in God, we do indeed have a secure inheritance in heaven. And it is not pie in the sky stuff tucked away for someday far off in the future. All these spiritual riches of heaven, the pure, holy, beautiful, eternal love of God is available for us to taste and to enjoy and to spend lavishly on others now. The, kingdom of he- the King of heaven, Jesus Christ, humbled himself to become obedient to the Father in order to display the Father's love and to share it. And we who are his heirs can do the same. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.